Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I have David Cooks with me. And David Cooks is from Wisconsin, <laughs> which is why we're talking. Now, that's not the reason why, but David, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Peter. The fact that I'm from Wisconsin, do we just end the podcast right now? Is that what we do? I, I, by the way, you just say Wisconsin. <laughs> You've said it all. <laughs> there you go. See what I did there? That's great. <laughs> so, David, you, you're a sought-after speaker. You've written a book. And you have an interesting story, which I'm going to have you briefly kind of tell our audience about who may not be familiar with you. I'm going to go a couple of different directions some other people might do in other podcasts, because part of what you've done since then to me is fascinating. But why don't you share with people what happened when you were 15 and kind of what that's led you to today, and then we'll run from there. Okay. Real, well, really quickly, when I was 15 years old, I experienced a spinal aneurysm which is a blood vessel erupted on my spinal cord. And so in the period of about 24 hours, I went from walking to being a wheelchair user. I was a lover of the game of basketball. That was kind of turned upside down. But that being said, I've had a great life since then that has included careers in banking and education. And, and I did some coaching as well. And the one thing that I will tell people is that adversity and, and tragedy, it does not destroy your passion or your purpose. You may have to go another route to find that or fulfill that, mm -hmm. but you can, you can still do that. And that's the great news that you can literally go from paralysis to purpose in your own life, regardless of what that paralysis is. So that's a uh, abbreviated version of my story. So your book is titled Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose. What's the getting undressed aspect of the book title? <laughs> Other uh, well, than maybe you're all, trying to attract a certain audience, maybe, I don't know. But <laughs> Well, let me, let me first say that this is not a sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey or A Hundred Shades of Grey or anything like that. That's a different podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I did want a catchy title. And getting undressed is something that everybody does. And we all do that each day. And it's kind of a rebranding, a starting over type thing for us. You know, the, the things we take off is our past and the things we put on is an indication of where we're going. For me, it, it meant that, but a lot more for me, it meant independence and getting back on my feet after the spinal aneurysm. I remember the day like it was yesterday when I was at the rehab center and they taught me how to get dressed. And I was so juiced up because, you know, you have to relearn everything, bathroom, mm -hmm. dressing, all of that kind of stuff. And I was so excited and they never really taught me how to get undressed. So one night I'm sitting in my room and I always had help at night getting undressed. The nurses would come or whatever. And one night no one came and they had other things they were doing. And I was stuck with a decision to make, you know, do I fall asleep in my clothes or do I figure out how to get undressed? Well, I did the latter and that figuring out how to get undressed was a pivotal point for me and, and getting me from the rehab center home in two months instead of six months. Wow. And that getting undressed was a great experience. I, I didn't get it right the first time. I didn't get it right the second time. It took me about an hour to figure it out that I, that I just literally could not undo what I did to get dressed, to get undressed. 
And so it took it, it took some other ingenuity and some thinking outside the box for me to figure that out. And from there, the, the, the rest was history. So David, I'm curious, you're 15 years old, you're an athlete. This happens to you. Who in your life at that particular point in time was an inspiration that drove your thinking? Because I know a lot of other 15-year-olds, you take away their physicality, you take away basketball, you take everything they live for. They go into a dark hole. Mm-hmm. Was there someone in your life that you were able to look to that, that helped realign your thinking? Yeah, there was not just someone, there were some ones, but but I'll okay. I, I talk about just a couple, couple of real quick things. I'm not going to go into these, but I, my faith was strong, my family was tight, and I had great friends. Wow. That was very important. But I want to talk about one person in particular. It was my roommate at the rehab center, and his name was Tony Otters. I met Tony. Tony was a quadriplegic, and he had suffered a diving accident and become a quad. I met Tony and Tony was like the most optimistic guy I'd ever seen. This dude was a hard worker and and he was talking about going home and going back to college and becoming a doctor. And, and you know, all of that sounded great until he got to the doctor part. Cause I'm like, man, you can't even use your hands and stuff. How, how are you gonna do that? But what Tony did for me was he first of all made me appreciate what I could do. He would have given anything to have some of the functionality that I had. I understood at that point that perspective, my perspective changed and that perspective drove my performance in that rehab center. I had to, I wanted to make sure I worked harder than Tony and he motivated me. And I understood that the only way I was going to overcome some of these obstacles that I was now facing was I need to make sure I had a positive attitude and I worked really hard. There are three things that are pretty important. And I'm going to get back to finish the Tony story because it is amazing. To go from your place of paralysis, that deep, dark, difficult place you just talked about to a place of fulfillment and purpose, there are three things that I think that are pretty important. Your perspective, perseverance and partnerships. Tony was key in helping me understand I need to see things differently. His work ethic motivated me to not quit and keep on working. And then there were a lot of people along the way, starting with Tony and beyond that helped me get to where I wanna go. You see, as life-changing as the aneurysm was for me, Tony Otters changed my life. And that's a different thing. And he did go on to become a doctor. This is the craziest thing for me. Someone, there was a doctor who had read my book. He was a former orthopedic surgeon for a professional team here in Wisconsin. And he got a hold of me and and he said, Coach Cooks, this is so-and-so. And I read your book and I want you to know that Tony Otters was my classmate at the University of Wisconsin Medical College. And he was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't even know when he called me with that. I was so overwhelmed and humbled and that not only had Tony impacted my life, I don't even know how many other people at the medical college at Madison he impacted, but he impacted this guy. 
and he was an orthopedic surgeon for professional sports teams. You can, and you know, we're going all kinds of different ways right now, but on this podcast, but I'm just telling you, everybody can impact somebody. Everybody can, and you just don't know how far your reach can go. But if you're committed to making a difference and you're authentic, see, Tony Otters was authentic. He was who he was with me. He, you know, there was no fake. There was none of that. He was just a real dude. You know, here I am a kid from the city. He's from the suburb. His sister was nice. His sister was nice looking too, by the way. Uh, (laughs) That helps. That helps. (laughs) So, but we were able to to mesh and get along. And it was one of the greatest relationships I, I had. And, and we kept in touch a long time. And I think he, the last time I talked to him, he was in Ohio and was, was a doctor there. And so the fact that he achieved that, again, I, I've had some great things in my life happen to me, but they pale in comparison to, I think, what he, what he achieved. So David, part of the, the theme of the, the program is eating crow, right? We talk about moments where we've made some mistakes or had to rethink our, our thought process. I had a guest yesterday say to me, I don't eat crow, I serve it. <laughs> Which, by the way, if you if you met this gentleman, you, you you believe it. But I also think there are people out there, as you just described, who impact other people's lives, whether they know it or not. What I what I'm taking away, and there's a reason I went there with these questions. I had to believe there was someone in your life that touched you in this way, and I had no idea. I had mm-hmm. no idea that Tony Otters was this person, but you said something right away at the beginning. I wanted to work hard for Tony. Yeah. And the fact that you heard he made it, you have to feel somewhat good and relieved that you honored him by, by carrying on and doing the same thing. Right. What what a great legacy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know what I would have been like if he wasn't my roommate, that it was like a divine appointment that I, that this guy of all the people I could have roomed with, Mm-hmm. was the guy that I needed at that moment to help me understand where I was and where I could get to. And you're absolutely right. I mean, anytime, and the sooner, the sooner I think we learn to live for others, the better off we'll be. And oh, yeah. I began to understand that. I, and that's what's so fortunate at the age of 15, I was being taught these principles. A lot, of, a lot of times in life, we don't get that until later. I was fortunate at such a young age, and I hadn't been, I hadn't been tainted by the difficulties of life. I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And teenagers, they haven't experienced enough to really, you know, be bitter about things. They just kind of, they're teenagers. They're like, okay, you know, I was starting to like girls. They were liking me. I need to get back to school. Okay, I'm in a wheelchair for a minute. Let me just figure out what I have to do. I think that that also helps that I didn't have enough negativity in the tank to override what Tony could give to me. I couldn't be pessimistic about the the authenticity of what he gave me. What I saw, I could not dispute. It was just so real. And I was like, man, I, I gotta be like this guy. Well, God puts people in each other's lives for a reason. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. 
Tony Otters is sitting on a podcast somewhere going, there was this guy named David <laughs> Cooks that blew my mind. He was a 15-year-old stud. <laughs> Maybe so. I hope so. But boy, he was a special guy. By the way, I'm, I'm tracking him down. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been trying to, I, I wanted to do the same and I don't even know where his family is now and all that, but that would be a great connect. I'll find him and I'll let him know that. Well, I'll, first of all, I'll have him listen to this and then I'll get him on the show. <laughs> so David, that, that is uh that's a really great message. First of all, that you had the ability to rethink your positioning at 15 years old, by the way, at 15 years old, that just astonishes me. So let's fast forward a little bit. You, you, you took your, your life in, in directions. I don't think people would have anticipated, right? You ended up coaching basketball. Like you said, you were in banking. You've done a lot of different things. When you're sitting in front of a 15 year old mm -hmm. who might be struggling with school, friends, family, What's the first thing you say to that young man or woman or that young girl about how they need to rethink their thought process? Well, the first thing I tell them is never as bad as you think it is. Mm. You know, I want them to stop a moment and just kind of reflect for a moment on some good things that they can think about some good things that are that have that has happened to them. That's a part of their life. I say you need to start there. The second thing that I tell them is, let's see if we can find someone else that we can help. Wow. Let's see if we can do that because I think sometimes we're so centered on ourselves that we don't even, that we can't even figure ourselves out because we can't see ourselves because we're so into us. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, let's see if we can find someone that we can help. And then once we start doing that, it's amazing when you start serving others and start realizing that first of all you have something to give and that there's someone that's willing to receive what you have to give it does something for you it does something for you mentally physically spiritually all these different ways and for these kids that are struggling they need a boost in confidence they need to know that they're worth something to somebody and one of the greatest ways to do that is to serve and so I talk to them about service. And then I talk to them about goals and dreams. It's hard for you to look me in the face and feel sorry for yourself. If you're able to do that, then I've got to dig a little bit deeper with you and see what's going on. But I think one of the things that is interesting is I've been graced to make this thing that I live with look easy. And so people don't know that this is a real grind. This is hard work, that there are days I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like getting in and out of a car. I don't feel like getting in and out of a tub. I don't feel like that. But I know I have to because I've got to live that day. Mm -hmm. You know, and so as I share with people that are struggling and I, and, and I give them the reality of my day, I want, it to, I want to do that in, in the context and in the spirit of Tony Otters, not in a way to make you feel guilty or bad, but a way to hopefully motivate you to let you know that if, if cooks can make it, you better believe that you can make it Heck and yeah. you can make it really big. That is, 
that's good stuff, David. (laughs) I'm also, I'm just kind of catching my breath because there's so many of us that have had these conversations with someone and I haven't armed myself with that kind of content. I, I, I can't even imagine how I can change the conversations with people. If I approach it from that perspective, first of all, let's go help someone. Mm-hmm. What a great perspective. When you think about you in the workplace now as either as a coach, as an educator or in the banking world, I'm curious, how do people first react when you come into the room? I mean, first of all, you're a very attractive looking bald guy. So we got that yeah, going for us. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I was going to say, depends. The ladies, you know, they're like, oh, the guys are like, who is this guy? Uh, <laughs> you know, it is so interesting because I have over my and throughout my life have always been, if not the only one, one of the few. And I've learned to embrace that and to leverage that into opportunities, not only for myself to have things that I can accomplish, but also I leverage it as an opportunity to build bridges and to get people comfortable with who I am. I understand, I remember when I went to college, now you remember in high school, I was the only guy in a wheelchair at my high school. Before being a wheelchair user, I didn't know anybody in a wheelchair. In fact, when I got to the rehab center, that's the first time I realized that people really had struggles in their life. I mean, they were really people were like struggling to live. And so when I went to college, you know, I went to a school that was one of the top wheelchair accessible schools in the country, great business school, blah, blah, blah. And I get on campus and there are a lot of people in wheelchairs and stuff. And I, and I kind of stayed away from them for a minute because I didn't know how to interact with them. I was staring at them the same way people stared at me and I didn't like it when they stared at me and I was doing it to them and I was just like them. There's the crow right there. And I was like, cooks, what are you doing? And so over time, um, playing between wheelchair basketball and, and, and other sports I played, I really learned how to accept and respect people. These were people. Yeah. These were not wheelchairs. These were not diagnoses. These were people. And here I am in the same situation and how quickly I was like, well, can, I wonder what they can do. Can they talk? Are they going to be able to go to the bathroom? Uh, you know, I, I start rehearsing all these things that had been rehearsed on me that I did not like. And so I say that just to say, over time, I learned that people respond to people. And I was, a, you know, I've been gifted to speak. I love people. I'm a hugger. I want to build relationships with you. That's why banking and those things were so great for me. And I was the first guy in a wheelchair in downtown Milwaukee in, in, in the business world. And we didn't have curb cuts or anything there. Sure. Then. And so I had to kind of help everybody go down this journey with me. And thankfully, there were people who wanted to do that. You know, I I have found, quite honestly, that the percentage of people who are hateful and have prejudice and all that are very small. Thank you for saying that, because I feel the same way. And they exist. I understand that. But you know what? I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt as a person. 
and I'm going to allow for you to evolve and grow as a person. And if it turns out that you're not the type of person that I need to have in my circle, then I'm going to cut you out. But I'm not going to go into it thinking you're that person because you look a certain way or you believe a certain way or whatever. And so my experiences have been overwhelmingly positive. There have been frustrating times, of course, and people will say things based on what they know. And the one thing I understand is that ignorance has its place and I don't have to respond or, or necessarily to the ignorance of people. Mm -hmm. What I can do is educate them and give them knowledge. It's two different things. It's two very different things. And so, you know, did people look at me funny? Yeah, absolutely. Did they, you know, know what I was doing there? I remember doing some calls, some calls in the banking world and I show up at a business and, and they, they didn't know it because I didn't tell them I was in a wheelchair and I didn't tell them I was black. And so they, and they're like, and who, who are you? <laughs> they were like, I'm David Cooks. I'm from so-and-so bank and I'm here to, to, to talk to the CEO or whoever it was. And that relationship building just turned out to be great. And um, to, to this day, I, I feel comfortable in any room, in any environment, and I'm going to share who I am with people. And if they receive me, absolutely, that's great. If they don't, absolutely, that's great. Because I want to make sure I'm in the right, in the right people, with the right people, should I say. And I, I have the right to choose who's a part of my life and who's not. And, and I'm going to continue to do that because life is too short to not have people around you and have, and not have yourself surrounded with people that can make you better, that can get you to higher levels, that can see your blind spots, that can help you with all of those things. I mean, it's too short to be fighting and arguing and worrying about how what somebody else is thinking and doing i just don't have that kind of energy man mm -mm. and when you were coaching basketball and you're dealing with by the way basketball is a pretty competitive sport absolutely <laughs> so the, the the young gentlemen that are on the court either at concordia or marquette high school they're they've got a vision they've got a goal mm -hmm. and you've got to harness that energy and I'm assuming, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong, you were not there just to make them good basketball players. That's right. You that's were right. there to make them good men. Yep, absolutely. And that's, can I go to my first, let me go, let me take you back to Darien High School in Connecticut. Please That was do. my very first high school coaching job after leaving Duke University. Okay. Where I got my MBA, worked for Coach K a little bit, and we can touch on that in a moment. But mm -hmm. my first job, it was crazy for me because there were a couple of things. One, there was definitely a change in the talent. You know, when you're at Duke, then you go to a high school, it's a little bit different. Yep. But secondly, it was the first time that I was a head coach and these high school players had never had a head coach that was in a wheelchair. And so I used to talk to them about, there is, some, I will never I will not be able to, unless a miracle happens, show you how to dunk the ball. There are some things that I'm not going to be able to do. But if you listen, you can learn because this is about teaching and education. And I will have the ability, if you let me, I may have to move you here and move you. I may have to touch you, 
to get you in the right spot and do some other things. And it was as though I was just one of the guys to them. And that did for me, the guys at Darien High School, and we were terrible. I mean, we, we were a terrible, we were bad. We were bad. We, we became respectable, but I mean, we were really bad. And those guys probably don't know that they did as much for me, maybe even more for me than I did for them because they let me know I was okay. I was their coach. I wasn't their wheelchair coach or anything like that. I was coach cooks to them. And if I asked them to do something, they were going to do it. And if they, if I needed to make them run or whatever, they were going to run. And that was affirmation for me. I mean, it helped. I was affirmed when coach K gave me an opportunity to work with him. He saw that I had something to give. And so I had affirmation all along the way, but when it became mine and I became the coach and I was going to have to deal with my own inadequacies and the things that I could not do, I had to go back to the rehab center again. Keep coming back to Tony Otter. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I focused on when I was there was the possibilities and not the impossibilities. I remember telling those doctors and those physical therapists, I want to, don't tell me all the stuff I can't do. Cause that's what they, you know, they tried to let you know, you're not going to do this again. You're not going to do that. And I was like, well, I just need to know what I can do because those are the things I want to focus on. And that helped me from that time on in October 19th of 1979 to this day is to focus on the possibilities and the focus on what I can do. Because you know what, I, I think it's a misuse of time and a waste of time to focus on what you can't do because you can't do it anyway. Absolutely. You know what, why focus on that? And so that's kind of a little bit more of an answer to, you know, how I was able to integrate into the marketplace and it wasn't seamless, but I tell you what, it, it wasn't very painful and I, I, I enjoyed all of it. I, I like people and, and maybe that's part of it too. You know, I'm a people person and I like people and I want to give people a chance and I want to talk to them. And so um, I think that helped me to help them to understand my situation. Well, you, you probably don't give yourself enough credit because you have the ability to disarm people around you, right? You're, you're not, a, you're not walking in looking for an excuse or, to be treated differently in the situation you are, which changes the perspective of these young men because they recognize that you expect to be treated as their coach. Absolutely. And you, by the way, for them to respect you enough to do that says a lot about your personality and your character, which will, by the way, that's a separate three-hour podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> so David, this whole Duke thing, I want to talk about that because my son-in-law played soccer at Duke my son played soccer at NC State. I have another son playing soccer at Elon. And my daughter went to East Carolina. We're very confused down here in North Carolina. <laughs> you don't know what to wear. <laughs> I, I, I have all sorts of strange colors. And of course, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm a Badger fan, but I went to UW Platteville and got my graduate degree at UWM. So I'm... I'm oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I can't even wake up in the morning with a clear head. You are a man of many colors. Can I call you Joseph? Please do. Please do. Another great... Yeah, Joseph. I like my coat. Uh, so... <laughs> 
So David, what what drove the decision to go to Duke? I mean, I, having been from Wisconsin, the the leap from going there to North Carolina, a lot of people in Wisconsin wouldn't make that connection until, by the way, I like to thank Russell Wilson for creating the whole thought process of going somewhere <laughs> from North Carolina to Wisconsin. How about but, that, right? Oh, so what was the what was the impetus for you know becoming a Blue Devil? Yeah, well, you know, I had set a, a personal goal after five years of, of full-time employment with the bank, I wanted to get an MBA. And so I wanted to get an MBA, preferably in a place that was warm mm -hmm. and had a basketball team. And so I looked at Duke and I looked at Carolina, looked at Stanford. I also looked at Northwestern um, just because it was close. And when I went to Duke to visit the campus uh, and visit the uh, business school, I just fell in love with them and the place. They, they actually flew me down because they read my application. And one of the questions they said was, describe for us your perfect job. If you could describe a perfect job, what would it be? And I, and I wrote about how I would be a basketball coach in a town of lakes because I like to go fishing. And they were puzzled, but they called and said, we've never had anyone write anything like this. And I said, well, you asked me for my perfect job. Now I could have told him I would want to be an investment banker or a GM or something, but my perfect job was what I told them. That essay got me into the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. And, and, and again, it goes back to just being who you are, having integrity in what you do, the whole being authentic thing. I didn't think anything of it. I, answered the question. <laughs> you asked me the question. And so, you know, when it came down to it, I had gotten in a number of great universities and I wanted to go to, you know, one of the top 10 schools in the country if I could. And the moment I set foot or set wheels or whatever you want to say it in Durham and uh, on that campus, I was sold. I didn't know Coach K. I didn't know anyone in the basketball program. But in the back of my mind, I was going to either be the best fan in the world and enjoy that or see if there's a way I could coach because I had been coaching back in Wisconsin uh, with some AAU teams and helping out with some high schools and stuff while I was working as a banker. And that was, I was like, you know, I'm here. So I might as well go and see if I can meet Coach K. And most people were like, you did that? I'm like, yeah, I was gonna be there for school anyway. If he said, no, it's not a big deal, I mean, I'll go to the games and watch. And, but he said, yes. And put me on a whole different pedestal or platform uh, in the coaching world. And what a great pivoting moment, since that's the buzzword of the day. That was another pivoting moment in my life, uh, meeting him and, and getting the opportunity to, to interact at that level. Coach K didn't put you on a staff because you're in a wheelchair. Oh, no, no, in fact, <laughs> Let me just let me just make it real clear. Mm -hmm. When I finally was offered a position with them at the time, Jay, when I, the first year I was there, Jay Billis was still there. Uh, Tommy Amaker, Mike Bray, that crew. And Jay Billis had the graduate assistant position the first year I was there. So I just came to practice every day because that's what coach said I could do and blah, blah, blah. The next year I come in and I talk to coach and I'm like, uh, he's like, hey, we'd love to have you as a part of the program. We think you can really help us, blah, blah, blah but the NCA has eliminated the graduate assistant position. Would you be willing to be a manager? 
Now, I don't know if people know what a manager is, so let me just explain that. Now, I'm 28 years old. Let me give you the context. Mm -hmm. I'm 28 years old. I'm getting my MBA from one of the top schools in the country, pretty much a grown, grown man. And he just asked me to make Gatorade, fill up water bottles. For teenagers. <laughs> and do Yeah, and do laundry for a bunch of teenage long people. And I looked at him for all of about maybe two seconds and said, yes. And it had nothing to do with the wheelchair. It had everything to do with the fact that he felt that I could make a difference, that I could add something to their program. I told the guys in my classes, they would always ask me, man, what are you doing? What, what do you do for the basketball team? What do you do? You know, what actually do you do? And I said, well, I'm helping them win championships. That's what I'm doing. And like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the things that I do, the Gatorade, the water bottles, helping with the laundry, those are all part of a culture of winning and I'm helping them win. That's what I do. Well, eventually a uh, coach pulled me in and said, you know, I think you know a little bit more about the game than you've told us. And we'd like to have you help us out with the practice planning and video breakdown and that type of stuff. So, you know, I went from small beginnings, but I put everything I had into that uh, and then to other things. So what a great experience. I mean, timing is so important to your success. I just happened to get there when Christian Leitner was there and Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill and Thomas Hill and Tony Lang and all that crew. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have written a script for me to be there then. It was like the Tony Otters thing on steroids. Sure it was. You know, and so um, I don't take credit for creating the situation but I will take credit for taking advantage of the situation because sometimes you can't create, create your opportunity, but you sure can take advantage of it. How you respond to it is up to you. And I was just grateful to be a part of it and to once again, just be embraced by, by the university, by the team, by Coach K. I mean, to this day, uh, I consider him a great friend and mentor to me. And he was just a giving person. And the thing that I learned from him was about having standards and about having expectations. And I was, I remember, man, getting yelled at in practice because a loose ball, I think Grant Hill almost sprang his ankle on a loose ball. And I mean, he went after me just like he went after those kids that were managers. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm in, I'm, I'm in for real. And so all of those things were important um, in, in teaching me how to succeed in life and pay attention to detail. And um, everything matters. Everything you do matters. There's nothing. I mean, sometime in those film sessions, we would go through things and they would see things. And I was like, oh my God, how did they see that? But they were so focused on the details and on the little things because nothing, everything had to be right in order to win a championship. Mm -hmm. And that thinking has permeated me ever since. You know, I'm always asking questions and trying to figure out the best way to do something. And, and is there another way, or can I ask another question, that type of stuff. So that's what the Duke experience was. And it was, it was fabulous. I wish I had taken more pictures and stuff when I was there, 
obviously that was a while ago and we didn't have cell phones like we have now, but I was just in it uh, to be in it and to enjoy it. I didn't think about, you know, now recording, it. I, yeah. recording it or anything like that, but it is what it is. Well, the fact that when you got there, you reached out, you established yourself in a role in the team. And the fact that coach K, by the way, one of the greatest coaches of all time, mm-hmm. one of the top programs of all time, said, you know more about this game than you let on. That says it all. You're in because of your talent and what you bring to the team. And my my guess is other people fed off of your optimism. The fact that you said, look, you you have a plat. These kids had a platform at Duke. Take right. advantage of it. If you're there, you have an opportunity to win a championship. And the little things are what define the most successful programs in any, if it's business or in sports. If you're paying attention to the details and you have a, a bar of excellence that you expect people to live up to, good things happen. That's right. Really good things happen. Yeah. When you left Duke and you went up, had your first coaching job, what was the what was the path after that coaching job in Connecticut? Where did you go from there? I was I was at the time I was coaching. I was actually working for a very large finance company at the, at the time. It was the largest company in the world, and it was interesting. I found myself sitting there. Instead of doing spreadsheets, I was drawing up plays and doing things for basketball. And that's when I knew that something was wrong, mm-hmm. that I couldn't stay there. Not that something was wrong, but I had something else to do. And so I left corporate America, took a 70% pay cut to live on a university campus in a townhouse, in a, one, in a one-room townhouse in efficiency to begin to, to continue coaching and also to work with student athletes at the division one level. That was the best decision I ever made. It was a hard decision. I left a lot of money on the table, a lot of success on the table, mm-hmm. but I had purpose in my hand and I didn't leave that on the table. I was able to run with that. And I stayed out there for five years, five or six years. and continue to uh, develop AAU programs and coach high school. And I did some color analyst TV work and did some radio basketball work and that kind of stuff as well. And then it was time to come back to Wisconsin. And I came back to Wisconsin thinking that I was not going to coach. I had been fairly successful out on the East Coast, um, not with my high school team, but just in terms of, I worked at a number of recruiting camps and that type of stuff. And, and so I was looking for some anonymity. I wanted to be able to go to the grocery store and not have people say, hey, aren't you? Or I've got a son, can you help with this? And, and I just wanted to kind of take a little, a little break from that. And that lasted all of about two years. And I was at my alma mater and the head coach left and they uh, asked me if I'd be interested in being a head coach at my alma mater. And I said, absolutely, I would. And got back in the mix. And it was a great run. I got fired, believe it or not. I won like 70% of our games, but you know, we had a couple of lean years after we made it to the state tournament. We were the first team to get there. And I was in my office talking with my, my athletic director and he said, we uh, need to go in another direction. And so I said, where are we going? Let me know where we going. <laughs> and I didn't know that another direction meant a direction that you're not going. <laughs> sure. You're no longer on the bus, David. (laughs) You're no longer on the bus, Dave. Uh, And you talk about a difficult moment. And um, it took me a while to really digest that and to 
try to understand that whole thing. And I tell you what, the thing, the thing that I learned about that, and it didn't take me long, while I was waiting for some sort of explanation or for, some, for them to say something to me, they were interviewing candidates. And I'm like, wait a minute, they have moved on and I'm stuck in this place of bitterness and wanting to hit somebody in the throat or something. And I was like, you know what? This is my problem now. I've got, I, I need to figure out what I'm gonna do. And as I began to change how I saw that situation, that I became grateful because if they had not made the decision they made, I would have never gone back and become a college coach at Concordia. Mm -hmm. I would have never represented the United States and Europe with Frank Martin and a few other people with the USA East Coast basketball. I would not have a book today. I would not have a speaking career today. I would probably be talking to you today because I would have stayed there too long. I would have been there past my appointed time. And as soon as I start to understand that, I became appreciative. I don't want to call them for the Judas that was in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, but but sometimes things you, you need a Pharaoh or a Judas or a Potiphar's wife or someone to stir the pot. Potiphar's wife, another Joseph <laughs> reference. Nice. Yes, yes. Hey, I'm working with you. I love uh, it. To, uh, <laughs> to get you to where you're supposed to be. And it was another lesson on um, you need to keep your attitude right. You need to make sure you respond properly, even if you're in a painful situation, that you can't allow for that to change you on the inside. And once I kind of got back on that thing, I was good to go. But what a great experience that was to coach my team. It wasn't a great experience to be fired. I had never been that before. I didn't know what fired meant. Mm-hmm. But once I went through that process, I could talk to people again about the importance of how you respond. I can't, I can't control what you do to me, but I can control how I respond to you. That's on me. And now how you respond to how I responded, I can't control that. But how I respond to that is on me. Wise words for trying times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can control. And I want, I want to be, you know what, man, I want to be a positive person. I want to be known as somebody uh, that uplifted people. I mean, I want that. And I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't want that, but, but I'm intentional about these things. I don't just kind of haphazardly go through my life and say, well, you know, I'm going to get from paralysis to purpose and I'm going to just kind of get there. No, I'm going to be intentional. I'm, I, want, I want the room to be better when I left. Just like I want whatever job I had, and I had plenty of them, I wanted to leave them better than when I got there. And if I can do that on an individual basis and on a collective corporate basis, man, I can't ask for more than that. I mean, I really can't. Well, David, for our listeners who are typically leaders or entrepreneurs, people looking to start a business and take a risk, I think that last message, right? If you're joining an organization 
or you're starting a company with a purpose, you want to leave the world a better place than when you got there. Yeah. That, what a simple goal. Pretty simple right? goal. It's a simple goal. It takes a lot of work and teamwork. It takes perspective. It takes perseverance. It takes strategic partnerships to make that happen. But boy, if you have that as a goal, man, I just want to make somebody else's life better. That's, to me, that's, that's what purpose was and is for me. Your purpose that does not serve others, to me, is not purpose. Well, consider this. I'm energized. By the way, this is one of the reasons I like to do the podcast is to meet people like you, David. But if I can get off this episode, I want to go run through a wall right now. <laughs> Let's go do it. <laughs> Let's go do it. So you, it's the you coaching me, baby. It's the coaching me. Yeah. Well, you coached me up. I mean, I, you know, I want to, I'm going to go down and talk to my kids and my wife. We're going to go, we're going to go do sprints in the driveway. Right <laughs> but what a great, what, and I, I hope you appreciated the fact that I probably went some places you hadn't been in a while. And, and I, I, I thought there's just so much more in, in this story and you did a great job not only telling the story, but really giving us information that we can take home to ourselves and to our families and to our coworkers and make the world better. That's really what it's all about. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you taking us where you took us, man. You know, I, I, um, when I, you know, when I wrote my book, people were asking me like, who's the audience? I said, whoever reads it. I mean, what do you mean? And, and they said, well, it's just, you, you know, you need to, you need to be more targeted. Well, you know what? My life is layered and complicated. And so the more I can share and the more I can peel off for people, the better. So I love this, man. This is just, you know, it gets to the core of who I am and what I'm about. And this is a lot of fun for me, if you can't tell. <laughs> it, was a lot of, it was a lot of fun for me too, David. And I appreciate the time. And uh, I, I'm going to put your links, uh, the links to your book and to your website in the show notes so people can find you. And if they want to have you speak to their company, and I don't know who listening to this podcast wouldn't. So what a wonderful job. Thanks for the time, David. And it's been a pleasure. And I hope you enjoy a fine white Wisconsin Christmas. <laughs> you had to throw it in there, didn't you? I did, man. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter, for this opportunity, man. I don't take any of these opportunities for granted. I don't care how many I've done or I'm, how many I, speeches I give. Each one is new. It's like, it's like starting a new season. It's like every season, I get a new team. I don't care if I've been coaching there for 10 years or for 20 years. I get to start over each time. And so this, this podcast takes on a different meaning than a previous podcast or another podcast. And so I appreciate the opportunity. You know, a brother was great. Appreciate it again.